Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when, they had said, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But, when, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that captures for us these things that happen. As John writes here, that we can hear them and that through reading and hearing them, we too can believe just as they did. Father, we need your spirit to enable us to believe, to make your word alive to our hearts, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Please help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are getting close to the end of our sermon series in John's Gospel. It's been a little over a year, and if we have no interruptions, beginning of December, we will be finishing out chapter 21. But as we've come through the narrative, we've finally landed on that verse I've quoted almost every single week here, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. The whole thesis of his book, this whole letter was written for a specific purpose that we would hear and believe, that we would hear about these specific signs that John wrote down. We would understand who Christ truly was and that by understanding, by believing, we would have life. Now the context in which John writes this is not at the last sentence of this book because Jesus is going to go on to come back again and they're going to have some more interactions as we'll see in the weeks ahead. But in the midst of this particular scene, John gives us this thesis statement. 
something we want to focus a little bit on as it frames this interchange. As Jesus shows up to his disciples, remember, Jesus had revealed himself to Mary at the tomb. And he told Mary not to cling to him, but to go and to tell his disciples that he was going to be ascending. And when Mary returned, she said to them, I've seen the Lord. The disciples trying to figure it out. They're still afraid. They're, we're told, locked up in this room. And notice again, they are here on the Lord's Day, right? They're beginning to begin this pattern of meeting on Sunday, which they'll find out here is the day of resurrection. And if you look, we move ahead another week, and it's the Lord's Day again, and they're meeting again on this Sunday, the day of resurrection. Interesting that their testimony to Thomas is the same that Mary testified to them, that they have seen the Lord. And so our passage today gets to us this very common story that often we call Doubting Thomas. Oh, Doubting Thomas. And oftentimes we think about Doubting Thomas and we can empathize with somebody like him. Somebody who doesn't want to take things at face value. Right? We live in a skeptical age, no matter what you know, side of any issue we are on. We want to be objective individuals who see for ourselves the evidence. What's interesting is that the New Testament never calls Thomas doubting Thomas. In some of your translations here, when Jesus responds to him, the ESV does a good job of saying, here, not doubt, but do not disbelieve. He doesn't tell Thomas not to doubt, but to not disbelieve. You see, the mischaracterization is that people like Thomas who are doubting are honest individuals, and if we're honest with ourselves, we all have doubts and things that we grapple with and uh, little bits of gaps of evidence and information, which it's okay. And it's good for us to have a healthy level of skepticism. But what we must realize in this passage is that Thomas is not merely doubting. Thomas is failing to believe. Before we get to Thomas, we have this scene where the disciples are locked up into this room where they meet together. They are afraid of the Jewish leaders. Right? Jesus has just been put to death. They are his closest followers. They expect the same type of persecution that Jesus just faced. And now his body has been removed from the tomb. They're not sure what is going on. And they're afraid. Now Jesus miraculously appears twice into a locked room. We're not sure exactly how he's able to do this. We don't have a, a full systematic understanding of what a resurrected body is able to do and not able to do. But Jesus miraculously shows up, and three times in our passage today, he uses this phrase. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. They are afraid. They are locked up. They don't know what is happening. Many of them don't understand what Mary is saying about seeing the Lord. They probably, like Thomas, have not yet fully grasped the truth of the resurrection. 
And so they are trembling, and Jesus comes preaching peace. Peace be with you. And he shows them his hands, and he shows them his side. And we're told that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I can only imagine what must have been running through their heads now that the risen Christ has miraculously showed up in their presence, who has borne the marks of the cross. He is showing it to them, has pronounced to them this blessing of peace. It brings great gladness to their hearts. And as Jesus shows up, he not only proclaims this word of peace, but he repeats it again in verse 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so Jesus, as he comes to his disciples, as he is raised from the dead, as he tells Mary to go back, he has one final thing for his disciples, and that is this great mission. We get some details about what this mission will look like. There are, of course, framed by this proclamation of peace. Just as Jesus has been sent, Jesus came to proclaim forgiveness, to proclaim God's love, to proclaim true righteousness and judgment. Ultimately, Christ brought in the ministry of reconciliation and peace. And so just as Jesus is coming to proclaim peace, so his disciples are being commissioned to go and to proclaim that peace with God is possible. And we're told in verse 22 that when he had said this, he breathed. Now, just so you know, the word on them doesn't exist in Greek. It's Jesus breathed. It'll be important in a second. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so we begin to have a little bit of questions. That's why I mentioned the on them moment here, because we know as those who have read the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit doesn't get poured out until Jesus ascends to the Father. That's why he had to go to the Father, so that they could send the Spirit. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, first, it's important that Jesus didn't, you know, like breathe on them in some sort of, like, blow out the Holy Ghost, and they all received it like they would have on the day of Pentecost. It's a difficult passage to interpret. Different people have taken it different ways. But I think what's important is not to get too much into trying to square this up with Pentecost, but instead to realize what they are going to do is going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. This command to receive the Holy Spirit is going to take place not many days later. Jesus breathes out and he says, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit. You must receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what your ministry is going to look like. This is what I'm sending you to do. When you have the Holy Spirit, you will go and you're going to declare whether or not people are forgiven. It's a kind of shocking ministry, if you will. It seems to be outside of the realm of what man should be doing. Right? Jesus was charged in his day for saying, your sins are forgiven. And the charge was, 
Only God can forgive sins. And of course, Jesus showed forth his divinity by healing those people, showing forth that he had the authority to forgive sins. And what Jesus is saying is that same authority. As Jesus is continuing his mission, it's not that he has stopped and they have replaced him, but now his mission is going to continue through the work of his spirit in the church. That his appointed apostles are going to be the ones who will be filled with the very spirit of God and will be the only ones that can give people any assurance that they are forgiven. And if they are rejected like Jesus has been rejected, those who reject them should have great fear that they are not forgiven. This is a term uh, that's often referred to as binding and loosing. That the rabbis in the day would put together things that they would bind and say, this is what we ought to do, and this is what you ought not to do. And, And there's this reality of this binding and losing that Jesus is giving to his disciples as those who will be filled with the Spirit that the things that they do aren't merely earthly but that they are tied to something greater. Oftentimes, uh, this really begins to answer the question of what is the role of the church. We have uh, baptisms and memberships uh, pretty frequently, it seems, in the past few months. And one of the things we often talk about is that membership is supposed to be a representation of your kingdom. You're standing in the kingdom of God. Right? So our membership requirement is as broad and as narrow as the kingdom. We must profess faith in Jesus Christ. We must repent of our sin, confess our sins, right? Trust in him alone for our salvation. And the reason why membership is important is because now we bind each other together under God's appointed churches. Right? It's not that just resurrection church, just Presbyterian churches, but God's appointed leaders like these men here to bear witness to our standing. That when we go into sin, that when we begin to rebel against God's law, we have God's appointed people to correct us, to warn us, to tell us. That we are forgiven when we doubt. To remind us that we need Christ to be forgiven. And if we leave and reject the gospel, we have lost forgiveness. We shouldn't have any assurance that we have ever had it. If we reject God's appointed means to bring it about. So this is the mission of his people. This is the mission of the apostles. They are going to preach peace. They are going to preach forgiveness but they're going to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. This is the proclamation of the gospel, that we can have peace with God, that our forgiveness is available through Christ. And then we get our first case example of what it might look like for somebody partake in this mission, and that's where we see this interchange with Thomas. We 
Remember, uh, why John wrote this book was that so people would believe based on their testimony. Right? This is also how John starts his letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify it, to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and was made manifest to us, which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. I don't know how how much more he could belabor the point. What John is saying is, we saw this, we heard this, we touched him, And we're telling you that it is true. And now we have enter into our scene, Thomas. Thomas says, look, if I don't see Jesus, if I don't touch his hands, if I don't put my finger in there, if I don't put my hand in his side, I will never believe it. I said earlier, we can sympathize a bit with Thomas, but see, what Thomas has here is not a lack of evidence or credible witnesses. He has a lack of experience. And ultimately, what Thomas has is an unbelieving, prideful heart. You see, when Mary comes back from the tomb and proclaims to the disciples that she has seen the Lord. When John and Peter come back and say the linens were still there. And then when all of the people he has spent his three years of his life walking with Jesus say to him, Jesus was just here. We saw him. We saw his hands. We saw his side. It's not enough for Thomas. We all have to take certain things at face value. And what's important is not whether or not there's a witness, but the quality of the witness. This is why we might listen to some news sources than others. This is why we have fact checkers, right? Because some witnesses aren't reliable. And we shouldn't just take everything at face value and be naive. But at the same time, we are dependent on all sorts of things outside of our own firsthand experience. They'll take the coronavirus, for example. Do you guys know how viruses are transmitted? I'm sure you've learned a lot about that in the past six months. But you've never taken the time to look at a microscope and see what that little red dot with the corn sticking out of it, right? Like, we don't know what it looks like, but we know because there are people who we trust, are telling us information that is true. Now, you need faithful witnesses, right? It's just one example of the many ways in which we must rely on faithful witnesses. It's not inadmissible from court. Think about any court case that you have, and you have an eyewitness account. What does the defendants or the prosecutor try to do to the witness that they don't like? Well, they try to get you to question whether or not they are reliable. They might go after some motives. They have a different reason for testifying in favor or against the accused. Maybe they aren't somebody who has the character to be trusted. Isn't it true that you did this so-and-so years ago, Mr. Smith? 
Or they might ask them to recount more of the details and look for discrepancies in their story that they might be able to discredit this witness's veracity. But if the witness shown to have no ulterior motives is least neutral in their character and seems to have the details worked out, well, of course we're going to take the eyewitness account as primary, as important, as necessary to understand what truly happened. And so Thomas isn't just showing up and listening to some random people, some people who are easily discredited. Thomas is talking to his best friends the disciples of Jesus, the people who just saw him, who just touched him, who just heard him. Thomas is not doubting. Thomas is failing to believe. Of course, Christ is so gracious and merciful that he returns again while Thomas is present. He tells him, put your fingers here. Put your hand in my side. Don't disbelieve. Stop unbelieving. Believe. I highly doubt Thomas followed through on his requirements for what must happen in order for him to believe. As we see from his response, he was humiliated in this moment. I can't imagine the scene. I can't imagine the conviction in his heart. I would never believe unless this happens, unless God writes something on the wall, I'll never believe he exists. And then God shows up. He's undone and cries out, my Lord and my God. Jesus kind of gives him a correction here. Do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And then John gives us his thesis for why he's written all of these things. This is all predicated on the veracity of whether or not John is a reliable witness. Whether or not Peter lived at this time. Whether or not Mary really saw Jesus at the tomb. There's so many details laid out. It's the same reason Luke wrote his gospel. He took an account of all the things that took place. So that Theopolis would understand and believe have certainty that these things are true. There are often things that prevent us from truly believing. And what we have here is not merely an intellectual assent to the things that took place. When we have this idea of belief, it's not merely that we believe that Jesus was alive or that John saw these things, but that we are actually placing our trust into a person. If the New Testament uses this way of talking about belief as not mere intellectual assent, but believing unto Christ. One commentator put it this way, you can say I believe in modern medicine, right? Generally, 
believe in modern medicine. I think it's, it's good. It's helped us out. But it, that's much different than putting your life in the hands of the oncologist who is going to operate on you, who's going to administer to you chemotherapy and radiation. That's believing unto somebody. That's putting your trust into that person that they might administer the truths. This is what Thomas was unwilling to do. But Jesus, in his kindness, shows up again. He finally does. This is what John has written to us for. Not that we would just believe these are factual statements, but that it would cause us to fully trust our lives into the tender care of Christ, to know that we have peace through his word. Peace be with you is only possible because Christ carries us to the Father. His blood covers our sins. His righteousness has been put onto us. And we can have peace. This is what it means to believe. This is what John wants for us. May God give us his grace to do these things. And may we take up this call as those who are being sent. Indeed, the apostles had this specific apostolic ministry. But the work of the Spirit did not end with them. We too are his people, and we proclaim that peace is available through Christ. That you can be forgiven if you trust in him, believe on him, allow him to do his work in your life. May we trust in him today. May we revel in his peace. And may we be people who are proclaiming peace to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have peace through Jesus Christ. Father, help us in our unbelief to take these accounts and to believe them that your spirit would change us, allow us to not be humiliated by our stubbornness and our pride. But Lord, help us to humble ourselves, to trust fully in Christ and his finished work. Help us to rejoice in the peace he has bought for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.